The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at republicen.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, here today with a very special guest near and dear to my heart. Claudia McMurray has spent a distinguished career as a lawyer, policymaker, and senior diplomat. She currently serves as the president and CEO of Mainstream Green Solutions, providing strategic advice on sustainability, environmental, energy, and natural resource conservation issues. As a consultant and in private law practice, her clients have included corporations, trade associations, nonprofits, venture capital firms, and contractors to U.S. government departments and agencies, as well as His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales International Sustainability Unit. In 2006, President George W. Bush appointed Claudia as Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, Environment, and Science, representing the U.S. government at the minister level on a broad portfolio of issues. She also served in President Bush's administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Environment and as the Associate Deputy Administrator of the EPA. She also has extensive experience in the United States Senate, which is where I first met her, serving as counsel to the Committee on Environment and Public Works, as well as to Senators John Warner and Fred Thompson. We're going to talk about the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, and she's going to demystify the international climate negotiation process for you all. So stay tuned, listeners. Claudia McMurray coming up next. Listeners, welcome back and welcome to the show to a woman who I've long admired, Claudia McMurray. Claudia, it's so great to have you here today. Thank you, Chelsea. It's really nice of you to invite me. Well, I just remember when I was a baby EPW staffer, Environment and Public Works, for those who don't know the lingo, in 1998, I used to hear your name all the time from the other EPW people. And so when I did finally meet you, it was just great to put a face to a name. And, and our careers have kind of oddly had some parallels over time. So it's just great to know that you are out there and paving the way for other women. And I appreciate you. Well, thank you. Um, it's been fun. Uh to have our paths crossed. And we've both worked for a couple of real giants in the political world. So. Giants who were kind of missing today, right? Yep, absolutely. Well, that really is a nice segue into um, the first part of the show that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, listeners, if you heard our episode with um, former EPA Administrator Bill Riley then this conversation will be a, a nice continuation. But if you haven't, you might want to go back and listen or listen after this. But I really wanted to touch, Claudia, on the Clean Air Act Amendments of 1990, not because I'm a great scholar of history, but because it is a time we did an environmental law, like through the whole legislative process in a collaborative way. And I know it wasn't always easy. And I know it was probably really messy at times. And it was many years in the making, but that process yielded a bill that passed by numbers we just don't see today. 
Tell us about your role in, in that bill. Well, I actually started um, in the private sector and private practice um, representing General Motors. Um, and at the time, in the late 80s, they were very worried about the prospect of having amendments to the Clean Air Act and two ways. One, for the cars, mm-hmm. auto emission standards, also for their factories, the, where they actually produce things. So they had industrial emissions, too, that were going to be affected. So I spent a few years on that. And lucky for me, Senator John Warner, who was a member of the Environment and Public Works Committee, the prime committee of jurisdiction, um, they were gearing up to hopefully push the amendments through in 89 and 90. They needed somebody to help them, and it was lucky it was me So to help uh, Warner in particular. So I got into it. It was still kind of going back and forth, but there was some feeling at the end of 89 that Maybe there was going to be a breakthrough, but it wasn't clear what. So there were drafts of things that got um, put together and they weren't going anywhere. And so finally, there needed to be a deal of some kind uh, and locking people in a room to get it done. That's sometimes how you have to do it, right? You just, I remember uh, my old staff director, Jimmy Powell, didn't let us order food as the negotiations got late into the evening because he thought if you feed, if we feed ourselves, then we're not as incentivized to close the deal faster. Um, But one thing I just wanted to bring up is that at this time, if I'm right, and I think I am, the the two sides that were negotiating, this was not Democrats versus Republicans. This was more of a regional um, disagreement. Absolutely. It depended on whether you had auto plants in your Mm -hmm. district or in your state or coal Mm -hmm. or uh, big, powerful electric utilities who were afraid of what was going to happen to them. Um, There, I mean, there were all sorts of regional battles that went on. It was not a Republican and Democrat fight at the time. As a matter of fact, I should mention that John Dingell, the Democrat Mm -hmm. in the House, was the one who held it up for years. Uh, I can't say it was him all by himself, but he had a lot to do with the fact that the auto industry in his district didn't want this, and he was going to put a stop to it if he could. And same for Senator Byrd, right? Robert C. Byrd from West Virginia. Yes, um, primarily, again, because of the coal mining in that state. But if you were from a a New England state, so I grew up in Maine, and I remember hearing about acid rain, right? And everyone was scared of acid rain. And then some of those New England states, the acid rain was caused by the pollution that was produced more in kind of the Midwestern states. And then, um, you know, air pollution isn't always localized. Those chemicals can shift and blow and move around. And so. um, Well, acid rain actually, interestingly enough, became kind of a driver of the legislation because um, it wasn't simply um, the damage to nature, if you will, even though that was serious enough, but it, 
it was a concern from a human standpoint as well. So it got to a point where, um, you know, we weren't just going to work on one slice of this. We were going to try and attach all the other parts of air pollution onto it. And that's, it became a driver. But there was no carbon title, no carbon dioxide. title. No. <laughs> and you and I've talked about this a little bit before. Um, there was uh, one lurking around for a small slice of time. Um, Senator John Chafee, who um, was not the ranking member, but he was very senior on the committee at the time. Um, he, um, well, then he became the ranking member. But anyway, he thought very strongly that there ought to be something clear in the Clean Air Act that regulated carbon dioxide. And it was just way too early for this. But but you can see, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit, uh, to me, it all comes back to the Congress. The reason we're still having a problem mm-hmm. with the international agreements and and the administrations that come and go and try to regulate all this is that there's nothing clear in the statute that says, yes, you can regulate this stuff in this way. Mm-hmm. Now, the Supreme Court has said, you know, in 2007, they said, you can use this backdoor way of doing it. Um, now there's another case on electric um, utilities, but there's nothing in the statute that speaks clearly and says, here's what you can do and here's how you do it. Listeners, I will link that 2007 um, decision, Massachusetts versus EPA in the show notes, um, definitely gave impetus for um for Congress or for, sorry, for administrations to try to regulate CO2. Um, But as Claudia and I both know, having worked both in Congress and you've worked in an administration, I have not, but um, what one administration does by either rules, regulations, executive order, another administration can undo. And so you don't get the durability with addressing an issue that way as you do when you pass a statute and it goes through the whole legislative process. And and I would add to that, um, all of that is very true, but you're looking at a changing composition in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and you've got many more justices now that look at the statute, and if it's not there, then they say, you know, get out of here. Yeah. So uh, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. <laughs> they don't actually say get out of here. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's harder and harder to make the case. There are more and uh, more justices who have kind of the Scalia approach that, you know, if the Congress didn't say it, then what business is it of the EPA or anybody else to be able to regulate? Yeah. Well, you touched um, a few minutes ago on the international side and the difficulty in coming to an international agreement. And given that you did have experience at the State Department under um, the second President Bush, I thought it would be interesting for listeners for you to touch on what that process is like, because I do think that there is um, a misconception. And I know I definitely felt this way before I went to my first COP that all, everything happens at the COP, the Conference of Parties, right? But these negotiations are ongoing throughout the year at the staff level, right? So the, the big meeting that happens someplace international 
is usually when kind of the heads of state come and they either bless things or they continue to fight and don't result in anything. But usually there's some sort of outcome from those climate conferences. But I thought you could give a little insight to what that process is like. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's incredibly complicated. And um, I think what is important to remember about the United Nations, with the exception of maybe one or two treaties, is that you operate by consent. And that takes time, especially on an issue like this, where there are so many different interests. So you have that kind of layered over the top. But you're right. The the heads of state or the very senior ministers come in at the end, and their hope is that they have something that they can all celebrate at the end. But it's not always the case. And certainly... With Kyoto, I think what makes Kyoto unique, uh, I mean, it kind of gummed up the works for for a lot of years. The reason was that the negotiations that kind of went at a mid-level, obviously governments call back home and check on things, but mid-level negotiations, they set numbers. Mm -hmm. They set targets for every single industrialized country, not for the developed countries, which we don't have now with the Paris Agreement. I mean, I guess the lesson has been learned that you can't set the targets like that. So, so Kyoto had, you know, um, all these numbers and, and our U.S. Senate woke up to it in the middle and said, oh, my God, we're about to sign something that commits us to a process that's mandatory. Yeah. And China and India aren't going to be part of it. Two major polluters, uh, two major carbon yeah. polluters. Yeah, because they were starting to grow, even though they weren't the, the industrialized countries of old. Mm-hmm. They were starting to grow and pollute now. And so that, anyway. um, that Senate process yielded another very lopsided vote, 95 <laughs> to nothing. Again, don't see a lot of votes that happen on an issue that is, you know, not, I don't know how contentious climate change was back in the 90s, but, you know, a 95 to nothing vote out of the U.S. Senate with a Democrat in the White House. To me, I find that all fascinating, right? Like the Senate was saying, right. President Clinton, Vice President Gore, who was very known for caring about climate change, put on the brakes. Don't do this. Exactly. And honestly, when I was thinking about this in coming to talk to you today, I thought actually the impact of that vote has continued throughout. I mean, really what we have with the Paris Agreement now is, is the product of that vote in 1997, right? Because now we have countries that are, and it includes China and India, who set their own targets. Mm-hmm. They they bring them to the international arena, and they say, "This is what we're going to do, and this is when it's going to be done." But there's no teeth. There's nothing in that Paris Agreement that is going to you know, cause sanctions to come down on a country. There's no enforcement mechanism. Right, exactly. So, I mean, hopefully year after year when they have to come back and explain what's happening, 
that will be pressure for countries to perform. But to me, that Bird Hagel vote in 1997 is still with us. And uh, it's kind of steered the way. Um, well, definitely, because even um, the other difference between the Paris Climate Accord and the Kyoto Protocol is that Kyoto was a treaty, right, that had to be ratified. And as you and I both know, and some listeners may know, to ratify a treaty in the United States, you need two thirds approval of the U.S. Senate. And when you had a 95 to nothing resolution, Bird Hagel resolution saying don't commit the U.S. Right. to any reductions that if you're not going to commit any developing nations, as they called them at the time, to those reductions, then you weren't going to get a two thirds of those senators to turn around and then vote for your treaty. Right. Exactly. Now, the interesting thing was um, President Clinton said, well, we're going to sign it anyway. It's a work in progress. We'll work it out. Yeah. But of course, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So that made it, to me, that made it even more sticky because um, then you had a new administration, George W. Bush come in and they had to deal with that yeah. kind of contradiction that was going on. I remember when President Bush said, no, we're not going to be signatory to the Kyoto Protocol. And I read something later that Carl Rove later reflected that they thought this will be in the news for a day or something. It'll blow over. But that every international meeting that President Bush had for the rest of his presidency, it was a top three issue that other heads of state brought up. Why isn't the U.S. a party to the Kyoto Yeah. And I can say, um, you know, the president had them, but I had meetings at the minister level. Same thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was always the first issue. And I had to, you know, hit it back and say, here's, here's our position and here's what we're doing. And maybe I should talk a little bit about the major economies meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, that didn't come along until 2007. It was being developed, but um, it was a way for President Bush to get the U.S. kind of back in the process, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know a lot of people don't think that he cared about that, but actually he did. Kyoto was going to the timetables and the targets and all that for the other countries were going to expire in 2012. So what happens next? So this major economies uh, meeting of 17 countries was designed to bring all the major polluters together, um, including China, India, Indonesia, you know, some you wouldn't even think of. Kind of have a subgroup that tried to figure out a way forward both on um, energy transition and how you might get the international community to come together in a non-Kyoto format. And was this in the lead up to the Bali COP? It it was. It was in 2007, and it continued till the end of the administration. And then, interestingly enough, uh, President Obama continued it. Obviously, he was hoping to get back into, you know, with Copenhagen and some of the other meetings, he was hoping to get an agreement. Yeah. But 
the process itself continued and it continued. um, I don't know about President Trump, but President Biden has continued it as well. Where energy optimists and climate realists stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Well, I mean, I find this all really fascinating because climate change is obviously something that we're all experiencing and it is going to take a worldwide effort to make a difference. And I, what gives me hope right now is what we were able to do with the COVID vaccine, right? So no country in the world was safe from COVID. Some countries addressed the situation better than others, quicker to quarantine, quicker to impose mask mandates and so forth. But I, I remember listening to podcasts on reading news before the vaccine was out and hearing how long it took it to get a vaccine to market. And I had no idea because I never thought about it. Right. I just, you know, as a little kid, obviously when I got most of my vaccines and I would get my flu shot, um, when I remembered. And so to hear that it could take four to 10 years to get a vaccine, I thought, Oh God, we're going to be in this forever. But then a year later we had a vaccine on the market. So I think when you put minds together and you put smart people together, we can achieve these big things. We just have to agree on what that final goal is going to look like. And that has been hard. I think with climate change, it's been hard. Yeah. And I think um, these last few reports that have come out um, from the internet um, intergovernmental panel on climate change, IPCC, um, you know, you could get a little less optimistic than you maybe you are if you uh, read all of them. But I think what they really point out is it's a matter of political will. Yeah. It's not that we don't have the technology to get there. So I wanted to get to the Arctic because I know that that is an issue. The Arctic policy is something that you worked on with president Bush. And to me, this feels all the more timely today, 2022, I almost said 21, 22, when the Arctic continues to melt, but the issue all along has been who has the, you know, the the mineral rights in the Arctic that will be exposed when the ice is gone and Russia obviously having a vested interest in trying to be the, the country that, that has possession of those resources. And here we are today in a war with Ukraine and listeners are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, but it's just on the forefront of my mind. So talk a little bit about your experience working on this and kind of putting, looking in the crystal ball, what you see happening. Well, um, one of the interesting things about, um, the job I had at the state department, assistant secretary for oceans, environment, and science is the short title. It has a huge portfolio and it includes uh, the Arctic and the Antarctic, but for this discussion, the Arctic. I don't know, 2006, seven, I was starting to get a lot of visits from what I'll call Arctic nation representatives. So Norway, um, I think the Russians were saying this, uh, some other countries, Canada, that they were starting to develop, to develop what was called kind of a, an Arctic strategy or an Arctic policy. And it was based on, you know, we have some institutions already, something called the Arctic Council, which is eight uh, Arctic nations. But they really work on kind of a subset of environmental issues. But we, because of climate change, we were seeing these massive 
transformations in the, the environment up there. Fisheries were becoming open, oil and gas, tourism, planes flying over. You know, there were also all of a sudden worries about just more and more people yeah. and resources uh, being at risk up there. In addition to, there was kind of a subtext of the Russians um, operating more on a military basis at that time, which happened in the Cold War, but hadn't been happening in recent years. So it occurred to me that the U.S. had no policy. We had nothing. I mean, we were going to kind of be reacting here and there and Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure that was the right way for the so-called uh, leader of the free world to be uh, <laughs> behaving, even though the Russians have the big Arctic coastline, not us. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went to Secretary Rice. I went to the um, Jim Connaughton at the Council on Environmental Quality. I went to the National Security Council, and I kind of laid out what I thought should happen. And we started an interagency process that went almost two years um, and kind of laid out every single thing that we needed to be uh, on point about, whether it was we needed icebreakers, the Coast Guard needed icebreakers, we needed more of a military presence, we needed environmental protection if there was going to be oil and gas exploration, we needed search and rescue for tourists that maybe got stranded or fish fishermen who got stranded or whatever. Um, You know, we just laid out the whole thing and it really was quite contentious, but it was something that I think people thought was important. And it turned out to be, if if not the last document, the second to the last document that the president signed on his way out the door in 2009, And it's been built on since then. I mean, it's only become more important given the fact that the ice is melting even faster than anyone could imagine. So, um, and now you look at um, the situation in Ukraine and the fact that, you know, most countries are trying to isolate them diplomatically in different fora. Well, there's something called the Arctic Council, which I mentioned earlier, um, at, the, at the moment, from 2021 to 2023, the Russians are in charge. Oh, great. <laughs> so, so when I was knowing that I was going to be speaking to you, I, I looked up on their website and it said that they're not operating at the moment. There's a secretariat, but there, there are no active uh, diplomatic meetings going on, interestingly enough, probably because the other countries wouldn't come. Right, for sure. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing, but uh, that hasn't come out in the open yet. We'll see. But it's a fascinating area. It's a fragile environment. It's unique in so many ways, and um, there are a lot of changes going on. That luckily um, the Arctic nations uh, are trying to get a hold of. Well, I'm glad that you had the foresight to engage the U.S. in having a policy and a process, because when you started to list off those things, icebreakers, military presence, environmental protection, search and, I mean, 
it's so much broader than what we think of. And, and same with climate change. It's not just an environmental issue. And as you right. were saying earlier with the Clean Air Act amendments and acid rain, not just about killing trees, right? There's public health. There was a public health risk. There was probably a risk to the logging industry, right? Like there are so many different, you know, it's an, an all-encompassing issue. Climate change is the same way that acid rain was I was going to say 20 years ago because in my brain, 1990s, 20 years ago, and more than that, but that now, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's amazing. Um, But yeah. And and I hope that we can quickly learn the lesson that we need, you know, not learn. We don't really have time to learn any lessons at this point. We just need to act. And as you stated, we know what we need to do on climate change. And so, you know, getting ourselves to that process before it's too late, because as the IPCC report stated, we know what we need to do and we have the technology to do it. And I'm sure that once we got started, technologies that you and I couldn't dream of would come on the market that will do things better, faster, cheaper. Let's hope. (laughs) It has to be. It has to be, you know, um, from having worked in this field, and I assume you feel this way, too, um, I, you know, if I talk about when I first cut my teeth on these issues, I had a lot of optimism that I could make a difference. And now I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's the challenges have only gotten bigger. They've gotten bigger and, and, you know, there it's hard to not feel discouraged and it's hard to not feel burned out at times for sure. And um, so I do try to maintain that thread of optimism, but the greatest optimism optimistic point for me is that I really do think that Generation Z does things differently. And I gave birth to two Generation Z kids who, you know, they, they see everything differently. They see politics differently. They look at climate change differently. And, and, you know, you have this thread where regardless of what their political ideology is, Generation Z gets climate science. They want to do something about it. And so I think we just need to give them the reins and let them do what they want to do. I'm ready for that. I'm ready to retire. Well, um, I hope that's not the case, but uh, <laughs> that you're retiring. But the, um, the organization that you're working with, I think, is a, a testament to that, that um, there's some real enthusiasm, energy, and um, drive behind solving some of these problems. I thank you for all your historical insight, as well as for the work that you've done. And I just think it's really valuable for listeners to hear kind of where we've been and what we've achieved. And that is also hopeful, right? We've done this before we've handled big issues before. Well, hopefully uh, we can start doing some of the hardest things. That's, uh, that's my wish. I hope we can get it done too. And thank you for everything you have done. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to have a conversation. Price, here we are just plugging through the season. Like I, the last two years time has gone by so slowly that now that it's going by fast, I'm just like blinded by how fast it's going by. April flew by because of there was basically one weekend it really one weekend before you got to Easter and we were in at Easter and then in the month of April, especially there was one weekend. And then the second weekend we were at Easter and bam, now here we go. We're about to be in May, the first Saturday in May, the run for the roses. 
Spring is almost here in parts of the country where I've seen pictures in of snowstorms of the last I couple know. days. What the oh heck? My, my friends were in um, New York in the Finger Lakes over the weekend, and they're like, it's snowing. And then they drove back to D.C. that same day, and they're like, it's 80. <laughs> like, uh-huh. <laughs> it's just crazy times. But, you know, I I don't mind the back and forth. Everyone knows I'm a winter lover, so a long transition into spring is sort of fine with me, and then short summer, also fine with me. I'm just, I'm not going to deal well with climate change price. We all know this. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't bother me either, Um, but still, um, just it's kind of nutty to see, you know, the weather swings like it is, and you're, I mean, I always say once we hit basically the first of March here in the South, or South Carolina, we're at spring, but you know, we had a dusting, a little bit of snow, ice, what, second week of March? So I, it it's crazy. You know, we're still in tornado season around here. So, yeah, it's flying by. Um, appreciate Claudia McMurray uh, joining us this week. Um, I want to thank some of our new members who have signed up. Courtney D. in Texas, Brian M. in Wisconsin, and Chelsea S. hope that's clearly not related to you, but Chelsea spelled the first way. <laughs> Chelsea S. in Montana, thank you for signing up. Thank you for standing with us, which you can do at republican.org forward slash join. Um, but, yes, thank you again to Claudia McMurray. Who do we have next Price, week? You know what? Before we go to get to next week, I did not bring this story up with Claudia just because, you know, I feel like we're kind of at this point in the pandemic where uh-huh. anything can make you cry, right? So... The first time I actually met Claudia after years of like hearing her name when I was on EPW and probably even answering some calls from her for my boss, I was at the funeral of Senator John Chafee. Uh We had both worked for, you know, her at a different time than I did. And it was standing room only. And I like, so I had to separate from my friends and it was like squeezed. Somehow I got a seat in the pew. I don't know how because of standing room only. And this woman was next to me sobbing hysterically and didn't have any tissues. So I gave her a tissue and I only found out and she hugged me too. I only found out later that it was Claudia. And I was like, that was Claudia. Wow. That's the first time I remember meeting her. And then, you know, our paths connected again at Senator John (laughs) Warner's funeral where, um, afterwards we had a staff appreciation moment, our event, and they allowed people to go up to the microphone and tell stories she was the only woman who worked for him who went up and spoke. Wow. I was too chicken to do it, but she did, and it was so meaningful. And I ran up to her after and was like, Claudia, Claudia, you have to come on the podcast. Anyway, long story short, she's just – she's amazing and just very happy to have had her on the show and to learn from her. I, I love an episode where I learn from the <clears throat> guest, and that was definitely the case here. So, yes, next week, to answer your question – um, we have Tom, Thomas Hockman um, talking about – so first of all, you might have heard the name Nate Hockman. Yes. Um, I thought Thomas was his father. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's his brother. He pitched us. So, you know, I get people email me a little bit more often than they used to saying I have a suggestion for a guest. I always follow up to see, like, you know, whether it's something we want to do or not. And Thomas – made a pitch for him to come on and talk about what he knows about um, energy security, especially in light of Russia and Ukraine. 
And so I had a back and forth with him. Yep, let's come on the show. Totally expecting it was going to be Nate's father and it was his brother. So he got a kick <laughs> out of that. Another young voice, another Gen Zer who's just out there doing the right thing, you know, and um, and leading conservative action on climate change. So very happy to have him on the show. Well, I'm excited to hear that and deliver that next week. Uh, Chelsea, until then, we'll talk to you then. Keep it real, Price. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.